Hello listeners, this is Emily Ann from Democrats for Education Reform, and you're listening to Ed Chats from Defer's media team. From its inception, our nation's public education system has been rooted in inequity, spanning lines of race, gender, gender identity, class, sexual orientation, native language, zip code, and disability. In efforts to change the status quo, education thought leaders and political minds are revolutionizing the education space. Every month, we sit down with a few of these leaders and discuss what's being done right now to advance a high-quality, equitable education system for every student. Today, we sat down with Liam Kerr, co-founder of The Welcome Pack and its partner, The Welcome Party, an organization which serves to strengthen our democracy and create a big tent Democratic Party by linking allies from across the political spectrum and from a variety of geographies and partisan backgrounds. We talk with Kerr about the necessity of allying with centrist factions, creating effective education policies in a post-COVID and post-Trump society, and combating voters' decline in trust with Democrats' current stance on education. So I definitely want to thank you for giving us some of your time today. I want to start by going into your background with the Welcome Party. So can you tell our listeners why you founded the Welcome Party and why the Democratic Party should take this name to heart? Well, it's so great to be here. Um, the Welcome Party is not just a welcoming name. It's what we do. Um, so as a verb, as an action to welcome people into the democratic process. and Yes, into the Democratic Party. Um, we were started in 2019. My co-founder, Lauren Harper, based in South Carolina. I'm based in suburban Boston. And the presidential primaries were coming up. And the Democratic Party did not feel like a very welcoming place. It did not feel like a place where thoughtful discussion was you know, energizing, exciting, bringing people out you know, into the streets or into the voting booth. Um, but you win elections by getting majorities and our democracy works and our democracy is defended when we practice it. And so we started the welcome party, not as a third party, uh, but as a way to reach out and bring people in uh, to the process and into the democratic presidential primary. You know, you're definitely not alone in the feeling that there are quite a few people, I think that would empathize with the democratic party, not being welcoming. Um, what do you think that is? Do you think that there's an elitism within the Democratic Party or maybe a quick to judge mentality? Yeah, and we try to bring a lot of empathy to voters in the middle, voters that are cross pressured, voters that maybe are with one party on one thing and another party on another issue, um, or just feel like the process is too noisy and hectic and they have too much going on in their lives. So we have empathy towards those those voters in the middle. And that's where the welcoming verb comes in of reaching out that action of bringing people in. We also try to have empathy for people in our party or people in the nonprofit industry that are major components of our party who care deeply about issues, who very often have a job to do. They literally have a job to go advocate for the most intense climate policy the most intense XYZ other progressive issue policy. 
And one piece of that empathy for us is that when you aggregate all those rational incentives, when you aggregate everything the Democratic Party constellation is doing, you end up with something that is not very welcoming to people who may not tune in very deeply. And you know, we always ask the question, well, what is the Democratic Party? Because when we say things like, well, we try to bring more independence into the primary, or we reach out to ex-Republicans to see how their voices can be lifted up to protect our democracy by endorsing Democrats in general election, or even switching parties themselves. People say, well, doesn't the Democratic Party do that? And it's really important for our model. And we think really important for uh, people who work in democratic politics to remember the democratic party is not like a fortune 500 company that has a five-year strategic plan and a ceo and a board of directors the democratic party is all of us uh it is the aggregation of everything that its issue groups do its activists do um and yes trends in social media and conflict-driven media um, and the nature of the party constituencies where the republicans are more of a solid block uh, a solid ethnic religious issue block. Um, and we have a big tent. We've always had a big tent and we have to be tent, be a big tent. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, but we need to project a more welcoming image than comes across uh, in media or just by listening to those activists who you know, may think they're doing their jobs. Absolutely. And it seems like from what you're saying that the party really targets your voters on the ground and the advocates in the nonprofit space. What has been the political response from more of our leaders in office? Um, you know, when we first reached out um, to different organizations fighting for democracy, um, to individual leaders who were seeking to go out and, and win a majority, they really felt viscerally the gap in the marketplace, the gap in the ecosystem um, that was targeting center-right voters that was explicitly reaching out and doing it on the ground. Um, so we saw a real void at the intersection of you know, democratic, big tent, ideologically open and willing to bring people in um, and on the ground and doing work, you know, literally knocking doors, literally handing out flyers, literally going to businesses, say, did you know if you're an independent, you're allowed to vote, which is something a lot of independents don't know uh, in open primary states. And um, people felt that. And so um, we had this really energizing, visceral feeling that we got back from leaders, candidates, um, elected officials, institutional groups, um, nonprofit organizations affiliated with the party. Um, of, yes, this is something to, to go do, to go chase down. And one really strong sign, I think, is that even people who may be ideologically opposed to moderation, ideologically opposed to uh, the type of approach that welcomes people in, it's not a fight that they necessarily want to have. It is a hard statement to reconcile with as a quote-unquote progressive that I do not want those people in our party. AOC has literally said, sometimes our party, you know, is too big of a tent. And it's like, well, you know, Biden won by a couple thousand votes. We just lost the House by a couple thousand votes. Who are we trying to kick out? It's rare that people are explicit in that because it is 
the type of cognitive dissonance that's uncomfortable to say, no, we don't want more people voting in our primary elections. You know, no, we do not want to welcome these people who we may have disagreed with during the Bush years into our party as voters uh, or for people who could have a voice. Mm-hmm. And so some of that conflict that happens in other parts of the center end of the party versus the extreme end um, haven't happened as much with most of our approaches to elections. Yeah, I think that people might have this ideal in their head of what a Democrat should look like. And then when someone fits outside of that box, I think that's where that cognitive dissonance might happen. Like with Democrats in the South, it's hard to win as a Democrat in Alabama, Georgia, Texas, and be staunch party line. Sometimes you do have to be a bit more flux, moderate in order to get those voters. And that can be very hard with some people in the Democratic Party to contend with. And yeah, it's I don't want them in my party because they don't fully align with what I believe. And yeah, that is hard, especially when you look at, you know, Stacey Abrams in Georgia and how it truly can be just a few thousand, just expanding that tent just a little bit can make such a significant change. And if you don't do that, if you shrink in the tent, then what's the point of the party? Who are you really trying to help? Yeah, the one of the um, like most surprising pieces of the last several years is that Democrats have simultaneously become uh, the party of science, and many activists and you know people of the ideological extreme in in the party um, truly do reject political science. Um, you know, reject. The many studies that have showed that moderate candidates perform better. The math, you know, that shows, yes, turning out one additional voter is one vote. Persuading a voter to switch is worth two votes. <laughs> the reality of split ticket voting. I think Georgia is an example where it's one of many states where thousands, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people voted mm-hmm. you know, Republican for one major office and Democrat for another major office. When we were founded, we went to strategists for both Democratic and Republican candidates who had proven they could win the most votes from the other party. So people who were winning 10, 20% of other party voters. And there's a couple of themes that really emerged from those that are really interesting for understanding campaigns and understanding how to run campaigns on the opposing party's turf and all that stuff. But the single most interesting thing was the strategist for the political campaigns that had been the most successful nationally in winning votes from the other party. The first thing they said was no one ever asks. No one ever asks them how they build campaigns that are able to win large blocks of Republican voters as a Democratic candidate or Democratic voters as a Republican candidate. And part of that maybe people don't think it's possible. People think they're all exceptions that prove the rule. Um, Part of it's a lot of the people who typically ask those questions. How do we win elections? What do we run on? They're not comfortable with the answers. They don't necessarily want to see more candidates. You know, polarization and the perception of a deeply split polarized country helps people raise money. It helps people fire up the base. It helps people be freed from the idea that you have to compromise. And not living in political reality is often easier. (laughs) 
you don't have to make those hard choices and trade-offs. And so for us, building up the expertise and understanding in this part of our society that we think is incredibly important. How do you identify and engage in conversation with voters who don't fit neatly into either party? And in our party, the vast majority of people disagree with the Democratic Party on at least one major issue. So Pew Research asks the cornerstone issues of the Democratic Party. Most Democrats disagree with at least two out of seven. And that's just reality. Um, that's not something obviously you hear uh, in, in the media, it's not something candidates hear. And elevating that, those disagreements within the party and the welcoming nature of our party would not only make candidates better and win more elections, I think it'd help the country heal from the sense of polarization that, you know, not just tears apart our politics and society, but communities and neighborhoods and families. Um, and uh, yeah, we think it's an antidote to a lot of problems, both for small D democracy and the Democratic Party. I think from what you're describing that, yeah, it sounds like it's a great way to unite people on the Democratic side um, who otherwise would still be very polarized from each other. I think that one of the issues that we've seen within the last five or so years is that people tie their political beliefs to morality. So it's not, I disagree with you. It's I'm morally right and you are morally wrong. And that's a very dangerous mentality. Absolutely. Um, you know, almost every battle has been reduced to, yeah, good versus evil, right versus wrong. And, you know, for complicated policies like K-12 education, uh, that's a dangerous place to be. And for our country, it's a, it's a dangerous place to be. Um, there's so many opportunities for unity, whether it's Ukraine or whether it's domestic issues like K-12 education policy. No. And to your point, especially with education policy, it is so nuanced. And I want to that kind of transition us. I want to talk about your recent paper, The Second Coming of Ed Reform, where you explain how bipartisan consensus fell apart and then fell out of the political headlines. So I want to dive into some of the four major arguments that you make throughout the piece. Um, Why do you think that the bipartisan consensus on education reform fell apart? And if you can identify any really key factors that contributed to that shift. Yeah, so the, the, I mean, the headline um, of the piece is in response to uh, a series of posts from uh, Matt Iglesias, an influential, prolific kind of blogger uh, who's now is a, uh, the Substack stack called Slow Boring. And so he had laid out a, a case of what he called kind of the strange death of education reform. Um, and so this, in some respects, is a, a rebuttal. And in some respects, adding context um, to what has happened in kind of the K-12 education reform. And I think we all know what we mean by education reform, so no need to define it. The main thrust of the Iglesias argument that um, I agree with but wanted to add context with is that um, the backlash to some of the Bush era and then Obama-led K-12 education reforms was effectively a petri dish for much of the division in our country today and a lot of the division within our party today. Um, So that's one key area of agreement. I do think almost setting aside whether, quote, education reform is dead or or fell apart um, for that piece is important because there's tens of thousands, um, hundreds of thousands of people who have been part of the kind of, quote, education reform push who still give their lives to that every day. They're still incredibly effective schools. 
and there's still a lot of popularity, um, you know, particularly with, with charter schools, particularly with base Democratic voters. Um, so I think some of the kind of dead piece can be overrated. But the connection between those battles and today's intra-Democratic Party fights, uh, I think, is really uh, is really important. And Iglesias does nod to those, but it's something that is really important to bring out. The faction within the Democratic Party, um, and we use that term in a kind of political science way, the coherent set of people, money, ideas that represents a large chunk of the progressive left that's identifiable, particularly in blue districts in, around the country, has significant overlap um, and in many ways grew out of opposition to Obama, uh, the Obama education agenda. And Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine has a really poignant uh, call. Democrats need to recognize it's the same group of people. And I think that's incredibly, incredibly important to connect not just for education policy, but for our politics, that much of the strident, uncompromising backlash uh, that united ideological left groups with self-interested groups, particularly public sector unions um, within the party to push for maximalist policies, um, you know, not only hampered educational achievement, um, but it changed the dynamics within the Democratic Party in a way that uh, not only reduced government effectiveness and I think oftentimes trust in government and the ability for government to deliver, particularly in blue cities and states, but made it really hard for the Democratic Party to win. It made it hard for not only schools to perform well, but also for Democrats to win a majority of voters in the country. So the argument is that we need more centrism um, in order for the Dems to stay winning majorities and win in areas that they currently are not. So how do you propose more of the centrism can take control. Yeah, so the the concept of of factions, the idea that um, you know Steve Tellis, uh, the political scientist, um, really influential uh, paper uh, called "The Future Is Faction," um, where due to changes in the party structure, you know, outside groups and increasingly uh, the collection of outside groups into coherent mini parties will really change our politics. But the extremes of the parties are very well organized, whereas the more moderate, centrist, uh, consensus-driven pieces of the parties are not as well organized. And so an important development for our society and for our political uh, system in the coming years will be a stronger formation of centrist parties, uh, uh, centrist factions, excuse me, within each of the two major parties. So for Democrats, that will mean, you know, people who are willing to reach out and bring people in, are willing to focus on, you know, results, even if special interest groups in the party are opposed, um, and who are, you know, willing to build the coalition large enough to win significant majorities. They need to, we need to get, I, would, I will say we um, need to get organized. And it's the same mentality, it's the same approach, it's the same group that did lead to a lot of major policy wins for K-12 education reform in that you know, 2000 to 2015 timeframe. And there were stronger centrist factions within the parties and relatively weaker extremist factions within the party. Um, and getting back to a world with stronger centrist factions within the party will create the conditions for the types of, of K-12 policies. Um, and other policies that uh, you know lead to 
more effective, uh, more effective government. And that's kind of what I was going to ask. So with a coherent centrist faction, how do you believe that that could better address some of the issues that we're seeing in education reform? The approach of a centrist in politics and the approach of a centrist in policy are often fairly similar. Um, so you can address politics with a progressive heart, but a more pragmatic mind. Um, and you can go reach out to people and have empathy and run the types of campaigns, uh, run the types of organizations that can bring people in and win. I think similarly with education policy, there is always this mix of a kind of progressive, bleeding heart liberal approach with the clear-eyed, pragmatic understanding of what works and what doesn't work. Um, so looking at education and saying, we want the best for every stakeholder, but this is the real world and the real world is messy. And so if changes need to be made, will the changes be made on behalf of adults who have master's degrees and can organize as part of a national network of millions of people and be a permanent political force? Or will we make change on behalf of people who are old enough to be allowed to vote and maybe their parents aren't allowed to vote either? And so, you know, it's very natural where the politics will fall on that, but it is complicated and it takes a pragmatic approach, um, whether it be on one school board in one school system to weigh, should we consolidate schools to deliver a higher quality education, even if it means a political challenge in one neighborhood? Or should we give a 10% increase across the board? Or should we add reading specialists? Or if it's at the state level, and it's, can we have the types of political leaders who are willing to say, yes, we will increase funding for schools, uh, but we will also hold those schools to a higher standard. And that's the type of a compromise that that leads to you know better educational management within um, local political context um, and also at the state and even federal level. So, and you contrast pretty strongly in your article this pragmatic realism of education reform that you were just describing with the kind of disruptive idealism of far left activism. So in your view, what are some of the essential elements that we should be considering when we're formulating effective education policies? I think recognizing what did work, you know, obviously there were things that did not work in the education uh, reform advocacy um, over the last two decades. But part of what did work is that, you know, tens of thousands of people grounded their professional careers in the messy reality of classrooms and of schools and of other you know, public contexts through years of service through Teach for America or AmeriCorps or leadership development programs and understood that there are no silver bullets. Even if there are very clear, high value, I think many of us felt kind of morally required you know, steps changes to make in, in education, that it was not simple. It was not straightforward. And that approach does serve K-12 education policy well. And an Achilles heel of a pragmatist is they recognize that complexity. And 
you know, in the Iglesias piece, he critiques Obama in particular for overselling what K-12 education could accomplish. And it's natural. And part of what makes pragmatists, you know, good at policy making um, is that they will recognize downsides. They will shift. But the battle over K-12 education within the Democratic Party over the last two decades, you know, did show a reform side that was willing to acknowledge trade-offs that was grounded in, again, you know, social science, was grounded in studies, was grounded in demonstrations of what worked and didn't work. And occasionally, in some places and times often, lost out to people who rejected the science, um, people who were willing to fearmonger, to interest groups that you know, were focused on winning at all costs. And I think a risk for the pragmatic education reform approach now uh, is to over-acknowledge what went not as well as hoped, mm-hmm. to really lean in to the concept that there's a new fad that you know needs to be moved on to now, whether that's in an entirely different sector or not. Yeah. And you you touched briefly on TFA, um, but you mentioned it again in your article, how Teach for America is an example of successful education reform. Um, and we recently interviewed Elisa Villanueva Beard um, on a previous Ed Chats episode where she kind of outlined some of the successes that TFA has celebrated on the local education front. So could you provide some insights into the work that TFA has done that you believe can be learned by other education organizations? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, in the article, I juxtapose, juxtapose um, Teach for America with the Sunrise Movement, where you know, the Sunrise Movement went straight from campus to the speaker's office uh, in D.C. Um, and did not go through a period of growth of understanding that the world is messy and complicated, but it's also worth fighting for. And I think one of the main TFA benefits was creating a pipeline of people who could both understand the world is messy and complicated, um, but also that it's worth fighting for. It is worth being patriotic about. You know, it's teach for America. You know, it's not teach because America is a terrible place. It is not, you know, teach because you are amazing and, you know, you can lead people. It is teach for America. There's a there's a patriotism in Teach America. Uh, there's a realism and a pragmatism that came from Teach America. And it is that understanding Yes, systems are broken. People are can be challenging. Lives are messy. Bureaucracies can be terrible. Um, but it's worth fighting to change them. Um, so in addition to that patriotism and realism, there was an optimism that permeated through the Teacher America ecosystem that then mushroomed out into charter school networks, other teacher and leadership development pipelines, other nonprofits that could you know, help bring education reform as a identifiable set of people and organizations and ideas to scale throughout the country. Uh, And I think recognizing that path of patriotism, realism, optimism, but also scale, also being significant enough in numbers that you can go out and change the world through a set of people that are hard to capture in metrics. Yeah. And that kind of bleeds into another point you mentioned about the decline in trust among independent voters regarding the Democrats' stance on education. So 
And that's something that we've seen reflected in many recent polls over the last few months, including a deeper one as well. So I'm curious how you think that Democrats can regain trust in the education front and communicate their positions more effectively to appeal to a broader base of voters. Yeah, the sense of helplessness that came out of COVID uh, for many individually, socially, I think when that sense of frustration and being overwhelmed when that met the decades-long kind of battles within education reform um, between the pragmatists and the ideologues and self-interested interest groups, that's been a dangerous mix for individual democratic politicians. And I think having empathy for, again, the Democratic Party is not a it's not a thing. You know, the DNC can't pass like this is our education agenda. The closest we could get to that is a president putting something in in a platform every four years. The Democratic Party is us. It's all of us. It's the uh, sum of thousands of institutional organizations and leaders uh, and tens of thousands of people. For a too large part of that uh, Democratic Party ecosystem, when COVID and post-COVID met with the education reform wars of the last two decades, a lot of fatigue set in and confusion set in. And this sense of deep polarization in our country where all we have to do is attack the other party to win kind of overtook the better, the better angels of a party that is supposed to be the party of education that has for decades enjoyed an advantage uh, among voters on the issue of who do you trust in education. And you know, Andy Rotterham, uh, the former Clinton advisor uh, who writes uh, at Eduonk and others have pointed out, you know, Andy has a great life. You can't beat something with nothing. And uh, too many parts of the Democratic Party ecosystem leadership are looking at K-12 and saying, well, the other side is so extreme. And in the highly educated, highly attuned Democratic, particularly Twitterverse, it is so clear what Republicans are doing is so awful that all we have to do is point it out. But you can't beat something with nothing. And I think the deeper poll and other polls have showed that. Among independents, they want to see what Democrats are for. For Democrats to be successful, that will mean, yes, acknowledging there has been a lot of challenging intraparty debate on K-12 education policy. But we have to move forward. We have to acknowledge where things are not working, particularly after COVID. And we have to acknowledge where that means change is needed. And everybody won't like that change. But politicians have to deal with tough stuff all the time. And education is not one of the tough things that they can just quit. Exactly. And that kind of leads into kind of a broader question that I want to close with. Um, When you think about how you envision the future of education reform, what key changes or developments do you anticipate? And what role do you believe that centrist factions should play in shaping the future of ed reform? Yeah, I think we in our party broadly, but particularly in education, we need blue district and state leaders to lead, to do difficult things, to govern effectively. And we need Democrats in purple and red areas to really press the issue and gain concessions 
and make compromises with Republicans in a bipartisan way that can create real tangible change and serve as a pattern for how to win in politics uh, and how to make our democracy healthier by working across the aisle um, and restoring a sense uh, that things can work even in purple states. The blue state piece of that, that first piece, is a challenge. I'm in Massachusetts. Boston Public Schools spends $37,000 per student per year. Boston Public Schools, in you know, on the nation's report card, it's about average for big cities. Um, Massachusetts is synonymous with Democratic Party politics. San Francisco is synonymous with liberalism and the left of the Democratic Party nationally. And so if people around the country look at the Democratic states, the most Democratic states, the brands that are most associated with our party, and they say, huh, I live in a city that spends less than half what Boston does and gets the same results or better, and housing's more affordable and we're building more of it, why would people vote for Democrats? And the blue, we have a major blue state problem. And so looking forward, we need to clean up our own house in blue cities and blue states. And you know, housing is a major issue. Transportation is a major issue. Uh, public safety is a major issue. But so is education. And I think the future of the education advocacy world that is so important to the Democratic Party, I, I think that's a place where there needs to be a lot of focus. And then secondly, I think you know one thing that Glacius does point out in his piece is that we have Democrats retreating in some ways, um, but we have Republican education reform that is running away from bipartisanship, that is running away from the types of sensible, common sense, cross-partisan, accountable change in education. And that is a big problem too. And so for education reformers and centrists of all stripes to try to bring sensible people to the table that can reach a majority um, is important, not just for education policy, but for, for our country. Absolutely. And I want to thank you so much for giving us some of your time today and talking through the welcome party and especially a lot of the key points in this article that really showed how centrism is something that's not only necessary, but dependent on the future and the Democratic Party's future, honestly. And I definitely appreciate your insights on that piece. Thanks so much for having me.